Fine Music Radio. People of Note on Fine Music Radio is proudly brought to you each week at this time by Peter Turin Productions. You're listening to Fine Music Radio and this is Rodney Trudgeon welcoming you to this week's edition of People of Note. And I'm not sure if you know, but Tally Ho Productions is proud to present a new production of Willie Russell's classic comedy, Educating Rita. And I think many of us will have seen the marvelous film made of Educating Rita. So to say, see it on stage now is going to be quite a treat. It's from the 5th of July and runs through till the 15th of July. Now, the music, there's original music being written for this production here in Cape Town. And the composer is Jonathan Blair from San Diego in California. Now, he studied composition at the San Francisco Conservatory of Music and Musicology at the University of South Africa. And he's collaborated with some of the most important artists today, including locally Magdalene Minard and internationally people like John Adams, Philip Glass, the conductor Michael Tilson Thomas, and so on. Quite a name dropper there I am being. Um, and his compositions include opera, concertos, chamber orchestra, song cycles, stop motion films, as well as ensemble and chamber pieces. So Jonathan is here to talk not only about his life as a musician, but also about the music he's written for educating Rita. And if we're lucky, we'll hear a snatch of that music later on. So, Jonathan, welcome to Fine Music Radio. Thank you for inviting me. I love being here. So tell me about how did how did you get involved with educating Rita? And when you were asked or commissioned to write the music, what did you feel? What did you think? Did your mind race to wonderful ideas? Or did you have to struggle? No, Yaku and me, we keep a correspondence quite regularly. So I think he approached me in May at some point. I was at that point working on a film and a commission from Japan, who I have on this program. But uh, he said, do you have any time to kind of work on this? Would you be interested in working on this at all? And he kind of described it to me, and it was this sort of like academia, England, um, and everything to me, I think it just, I mean, immediately started having ideas. And he started sharing with me ideas about like Shostakovich, Benjamin Britten, and it was this sort of harmonic language that, I mean, I think as a composer, you have to both be leveraging what collaborator wants. And so I think that's picking the types of languages that you get to use. So, of course, I was very drawn to kind of that pastoral English kind of Ralph von Williams sound and stuff. And uh, <laughs> Yes, a favorite composer of mine. May I interpret it? <laughs> yeah, and so I jumped on it like immediately. And I think it was a very actually easy thing to do. I think he gave me the first cue on a Sunday, and by the next Sunday, I think the whole thing was written. Wow. Yeah. And how much music is that? I think there's about 10 minutes of music. In the whole play? Yeah, it's 15 cues. So, I mean, the majority of the music is, like, to transition scenes. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, I think that was the difficulty about it, was to kind of both reflect on what had happened to the scene before and what was coming and not make it disparate elements, but that it had some sort of unifying theme between one transition. A sort of flow, in a sense. Yes, exactly, yeah. Uh, Did you know the piece, or did you have to quickly go and look it up or watch the film or read it? I did watch the film that night, with, uh, and I thought, uh, yeah, exactly like you said, it was a fantastic film. Um, And did you read the book or the play, the play version? No, I read through the script that Yaku had given me. Yeah, I had that 
with me. Mm -hmm. So I got to see the kind of differences between that and the film. I know with the film, they kind of exit out of the office. Um, so it kind of builds those characters up more, whereas I think in this, everything had to be kind of told with regard to events that had happened outside. So that was another aspect to that music, is trying to grab those emotions, like, for instance, when Rita is talking about her husband's leaving her and trying to bring that in while between the scenes, it was actually comedic, you know, so you have to kind of bring those elements of, you know, life crashing down on you. What sort of instrumentation did you have at your disposal to use? I presume it'll be recorded music anyway. Yeah, so we have, uh, it was a trio, clarinet, cello, and piano. Oh, that's an interesting combination. Yeah. And a very nice combination. Yeah. When you think of some of the classical works that have been written for that combination. Yeah, I think that was very important for us to kind of bridge this idea of what Frank, the the professor, what he would be listening to. Mm -hmm. And just getting that sort of academic feeling and what would have been on his radio, et cetera. So, I mean, I think it goes in between being atmospheric music and then being more contrapuntal, kind of classical Baroque stuff. So you, you've intrigued me, Jonathan. Let's listen. You've brought a clip, haven't you, of uh, what you've written for Educating Rita. And we'll listen to just a clip of that. What what will we hear? Explain to us what we're about to hear. So this is the opening. It's a basically an overture. Again, it has to be very short because it's, you know, opening the scene. But we have kind of this pastoral gesture, which sets us up in England. It immediately moves into a fugue or a fugue idea um, so that we're kind of in that whole realm of academia. And then from that point, it goes to kind of this solemn, somber attitude in which Frank is preparing for the drudgery of another semester. an excerpt from music that's just been written especially for a production of Educating Rita, which is opening at the Theatre on the Bay uh, this week, in fact, and it was written by my guest, Jonathan Blair, um, who, as you heard him introduce it there, uses it as a fugue. And it's interesting, Jonathan, that you use the fugue to introduce an element of academia because one does think of a fugue, doesn't one, as rather academic in music, doesn't one, really? Of course, yeah. So this features, or rather introduces Frank in his study and gives the music and the whole thing a kind of academic feel because academia is very important in educating Rita. 
Do you agree? Yeah, of course. Yeah, and I think it also sets up, you know, the when you have uh, Rita's character come in, it is much more populist, much more, you know, I, I think maybe even sometimes slapstick. And that theme, I think, starts to kind of evolve in, as she's trying to establish herself within academia. And I think even at points it pulls back because she's, you know, realizing who she is outside of academia. What I wanted to ask you is when I was introducing you, just to go back a little bit to your background, Jonathan, mm-hmm. um, San Diego in California is your home, apparently. Um, and then you came to South Africa and now you're based here, aren't you? What drew you to South Africa? Uh, my wife. So my wife is your is, wife South African? Yeah, she's a South African. So um, I think when we were trying to decide where we were going to make a life together, I came to the conclusion that being a composer, you can kind of compose from anywhere. These days you can, can't you? Yeah. And uh, I think it's worked out very well just because, I, I mean, I still have all my contacts there. And one of the uh, things that I managed to do here is create this company that kind of leverages the talent and kind of the resources that are available through people like Cape Town Philharmonic and, you know, leverage that against the rand and the dollar so that... Oh, yes, which I'm sure is quite important these days. Yeah, well, it goes up and down, but yeah, so we're always continuously watching it. But certainly, I mean, I think if you are looking at a production in, you know, the U.S., the, the prices are almost like 10 times as much, which, you know, I think one has to be careful not to pitch it as like a budget, something like a budget uh, orchestra or something, but that with your money being able to go further, you're able to book these musicians for longer periods of time. And of course, rehearsals are everything. So I mean, the fact that something didn't work right for a director and they want to go back and redo it, they have access to, I think, these musicians over longer periods of time because the budget just runs further. You reminded me of an interview we had recently here on People of Note with John Walton, um, who's been appointed as the manager of the Cape Town Philharmonic. But you are also involved in a project with him, Cinemagic, is that right, where the orchestra's hired out to do these things? Yeah, well, our, we the company, our company, Stratosphere, is partnered with Cinemagic Scoring. So, for instance, if anybody's coming through with a score, we hand it off to John Walton and have them kind of go through all the conducting and everything. And so, yeah, so, um, and then we take it back and start to master it and kind of work with the director one-on-one. So I think the company starts as kind of this, you know, they'll come to us and say, this is the kind of music we're looking for, whatever, we get the music written, we pass it off, or maybe they have a uh, composer on that side, which I think also when you're looking at kind of the budgets that are going into things like MIDI scores, when you realize what you can actually achieve with something like Cape Town Philharmonic, then you, we take those composers, put them in line with cinematic scoring and, you know, get the recording. Um, and it's also very good, isn't it, as John said, for the Cape Town Philharmonic because they get paid for that. And it means that they, although they're working quite hard, at least having come through COVID and all that, they are being paid for some extra work like this. Yeah, no, I think it's a it's a win-win all around because mm. I think the, the budgets that are coming from overseas are, you know, they're saving a lot of money. And then, like you say, uh, people here are earning a very good wage um, off of the work that they're getting. But it seems from having read what you do that you I mentioned about your various commissions. Mm. Um, uh, what are stop motion films, just for example, <laughs> because I have no idea what that might be. So this is a very strange project, but there's an artist, Mikhail Sabalski, um, who is one of those profound intellectual 
kind of collaborators I've ever worked with. Um, he shares a studio with William Kendridge, and he approached me about uh, a film that he was doing where he was taking these paintings of Rembrandt, not obviously not the originals, but he would take these like oil represent or rep, uh, what is it called? Representation was a good yeah, word. Yeah, yeah. Prints, yes, prints. Yeah. That's a good word. And then he would go and he would remove the paint and use that paint to repaint. Like so, on the Rembrandt, it's the anatomy of uh, or the, the anatomy lesson of Doctor Tulp, and there's this criminal on the table, Arnest Kint, and he opens up the stomach through this animation and has like kind of a ship coming out of it, and it's this concept of like the kind of Dutch golden age and its influence in, in South Africa. So he actually had these paintings where he was, you know, having to remove the paint and through doing that was actually animating on these paintings. And then the finalized versions of those paintings ended up going into galleries in, in London. So that film premiered in London. Um, but yeah, it was stop motion. I think we worked on that project for about two and a half years or something <laughs> like that. And it was it was a bit grueling because it was like, you know, it would be like a week. It would go between one session and another. And his animation, he'd get maybe like two or three seconds done. And you'd have to continuously be, you know, kind of orchestrating to that. It was actually a big project. We worked with Cape Town Opera and, yeah. Will we ever get to see it here? We did a private premiere. I'm st still trying to kind of nudge him to get it, you know. <laughs> Into <laughs> to, the public domain here. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. think for him, though, it's a lot of spectacle. He wants some sort of... Um, reason for it to be here. So, mm -hmm. I mean, he wanted to show the film at the castle um, because it, we did a lot of, in fact, we did sound recordings at the castle where we kind of integrated that as part of the orchestration. Was he allowed to use Rembrandt's paintings? I mean, what about, I'm, I'm thinking of the silly thing called copyright. Well, of course, I think with copyright, uh, it it's only like 70 years after the death or something like that. Yeah. So with, <laughs> It'd be and, free, and yeah. you know, I think looking into this, it's always something that I get into with having to be careful. Um, but there's a, if you transform the work enough that it makes a different type of statement than was intended, then it's fair use. Then it's fair use, yeah. okay. And so you wrote the music for this project. Yeah. Let's stop, gosh, it sounds fascinating. So we have to go all the way to Amsterdam to see it, at the moment anyway. Well, I do have a clip, because it's the, one of the clips on here. <laughs> okay, that's coming up. Yeah. But talking about clips, your next piece of music, um, you call it a fugue. We're going to do the fugue mm. in. And you say it comes from a project that attempted to use the theoretical aspects of Arabic and Baroque dance forms. This is interesting. Tell us what we can expect to hear or listen out for. So I'll just preface with the fact, as a composer, I think a lot of what you're doing is you're making observations about other people's music. So like if I'm, you know, working on Brahms at a moment, I, it's like you start to see how phrases are are conflicting with meters, etc. And how that kind of builds harmony, or what it might be. So one of the things with Arabic maqam is that their entire conception of harmony and, you know, melody is entirely different. And when we tend to try to move, uh, like if we take Arabic music and put it on in some sort of uh, crossover fashion, we get something that sounds westernized with elements of Arabic music. But to really, I think, study and understand what's going on and the way that they conceive of it and then try to mold it into Baroque music, they're constantly fighting with each other. And one of the things I've noticed about this with trying to merge styles is that it's like a slider. And if it's a dead in the center, it sounds like neither. And if you slide it a little bit to the left or a little bit to the right, it just 
overwhelms the other style, right? Yeah, yeah. So that was kind of what I was going for here is that balance of what is would be registered as Arabic music and then also fitted into something, again, uh, which is very synonymous with Western music is the fugue. So when we listen now, we mm. will hear the fugue, which uh, people who know about music would yeah. uh, recognize. And will we hear mostly Arabic sounds? Will it sound Arabic? I hope so. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's uh, from the composer himself. Let's yeah. listen to this fugue. Thank you. 
heard there a fugue with a sort of Arabic twist, may I say. Mm. <laughs> um, and that's the music of my guest, Jonathan Blair, on People of Note this week, who is a composer and who's written the music, original music for the play Educating Rita, which will be on at the Theatre on the Bay this week. And this music we heard, I mean, I while it was playing, I said to you, it sounds like live. It's not synthesized. These are musicians from Cape Town, aren't they, who we've just heard? Yeah. So I hope I don't mess up the names because it's I'm not a native Afrikaans speaker, but Lisa Threat and then Dorette Rus and Carla. I can't remember her last name when she got married. I, I want to say her maiden name was Carla Fiera. Okay. Yeah. Well, and I think we know who you mean, put it that yeah. way. Yeah. So that was interesting. Okay, that's another taste of the music written by my guest. But now I want to delve into your past, uh, Jonathan Blair from San Diego in California. So when did music make its appearance in your life? My grandfather was a musician. Um, I have a lot of kind of musical, or I guess musicians, musical people, I guess you would say, in my family. Uh, I have two luthiers in the family. Oh, yeah. yes. I'm so, going to come to that in a moment as well. Uh, yeah, yeah. But yeah, so I think music was always a big part of our upbringing. Um, I started music lessons very, very young. By the time I was like, kind of in high school, I was kind of being already placed in advanced programs and stuff. And I, when did you decide to compose rather than just to be a performer? Did you well, always we, want to compose first and foremost? Well, that's, I think, an interesting question. Let me see. Like, So the first compositions I did were like in junior high. I don't know what that would be in South African. We'll but it's say like, junior school, yeah. Yeah, it's about 12 years old, 11 years old and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I was writing the music for these little films for science class and stuff, like a, a astronaut type things. Um, and I did really like it. I think, you know, as a performer, when I went into the conservatory, I applied as a performer. And it was about, or, or performance study. In the U.S., they don't let you do like study an instrument and composition. They consider composition the instrument, so you have to choose one or the other. And so it was only about two months that I was in the conservatory before I realized, no, the thing I want to be doing is composition. Oh, okay. So yeah. I had to then reapply while I was still at school to get into the composition department. But I was at that point already studying with a composer. So I think it was one of those things I'd never really made the distinction, which is probably closer to South African university system, whereas you're a performer and a composer. But I realized that, you know, for me, I would always want to slow down at the piano and say, well, what's going on here and what's doing that sort of a thing. And <laughs> you're and, inquiring mind. Yes. Yeah. It's like, why is Why are they using an F double sharp over here or something like that? You know, and and yeah. So I think I guess composition has always been with me since a child. So. So the piano was your instrument, uh, first and foremost, that got you into the whole thing? Yeah. It's still presumably the basis when you write music. Are you writing on with a piano or are you writing on a computer? Never at the piano. I think it's one of the worst things uh, with regard to actually being able to put something together for musicians because, I mean, you, you know, your hand has a particular span and then you're thinking, well, that's going to fit great on like a violin or something. And then they'll say, well, you know, I can't play these two notes together because they're on the same string or something like that. So when I write, I, I look at every single part and it must be like I'm thinking like a string player or I'm thinking like a clarinetist or something, which is, you know, has to do with kind of the way that the break is on the clarinet or you know, how much wind somebody has in their lungs when they're playing flute. So, I mean, I try to sing through everything that I do, and I try to get some sense of what the, the stamina that's required for the, the instrumentalist. And it was actually, uh, you know, it's unfortunate for my wife, too, because it's like, I can't play any of these instruments, really. So it's like, at one point, she said that when I, with my French horn 
playing, she says that I've upgraded from like a Wookiee mating call to a, a, a moose dying. You know, <laughs> that's that's the level of my horn playing. But you know, you just have to get some sense of how long, like, because you don't think about it, but it's like with a clarinet, it takes them a split second to actually get the air in there and going. Mm. And you have to, I think, compensate for those things in the score. And it's actually something I think a lot of the performers come back to me and say, that it is built very, very logically. So, um, oh, that's a nice compliment. Yeah, is it? yeah. I, I don't know, uh, Brittany Smith. Uh, when we were doing this project, she was looking at the music and she was thinking, like, okay, this is going to be very difficult. I, I mean, she told me this afterward that because the harmony sounded so complex that she thought it was going to be like a challenge to get through it, but that you know, you kind of give very logistical steps to get there so that you're thinking in G major, you're thinking in, in stuff that they would naturally be singing through that it made it easier to get through, which I do think is a great compliment. So, um, Going back to your wife's opinion of your yeah. horn playing, <laughs> is your wife uh, a musician at all? No, not at all. Not at all. So She is very much into kind of culinary artistry, I'll say it that way. So you're well fed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but also horses, as you mentioned earlier. Yeah, no. Um, so, yeah, we live on a equestrian estate in Somerset West. And, yeah, she used to do competition riding all the time. So we have a couple of horses that are now retired that used to, they were going through the circuit at one point. Oh, right. Yeah. Jonathan, let's have another <clears throat> piece of music now. Here you say that you attempted to slowly modulate between one period and another. Once again, just guide us through what we're about to hear. So the project that we were just talking about with Mikhail Sabowski, uh, it's called Epilogue. Um, and especially for this piece, it was this thing where you had uh, three time periods happening all on top of each other. So it was present time South Africa, um, somewhere in the 1950s during apartheid, and then in the... 17th century when Jan van Riebeck first came over. So um, for that, there was this sense in which you had to continuously move the music in such a way that it wasn't jarring, like it just went from one particular like Baroque setting and then all of a sudden now you're in modernist music or something. Um, and yeah, so for me, it's this kind of slow evolution that you, you'll be able to hear in this is where you'll pick up on, on things that obviously sound like the counterpoint of Bach, but then they slowly start to modulate into something that becomes much more modernized by the end of it.
on. This music has never been heard on Fine Music Radio before, and it's the music of my guest, Jonathan Blair, who is actually in the studio to talk about the show Educating Rita, which is running at the Theatre on the Bay, and for which Jonathan wrote the incidental music, if I can call it that. But that piece we've just heard, once again, you're using instrumentalists there and not just anything electronic, you're using real live musicians. That's right. Which is good for them uh, and all the rest of it. So there's something I want to change the subject quite dramatically because you mentioned luthiers in your family. And Mm -hmm. the first time I met you a few months ago, you were here because John Woodland, our colleague and friend, had just been to America. And he brought back two rather elaborate lutes and you came in to collect them. And I automatically assumed that you were one of these early instrument specialists. But clearly, I'm quite wrong about that. But what were you doing with such fancy lutes? I had commissioned them. Yeah, so they, they were built You for had me. commissioned them to be made. Yeah, yeah. So one is, I think, the Yale replica of a Bach lute or a, a, a lute from the Bach era. It was a 13-course lute. Um, and that's something that you would play Baroque music on. And the other one is a Renaissance lute, like you would do, you know, the music of John Dowlin or mm-hmm. Weiss sort of a thing. So, I mean, I've always loved the lute. I think it's it's in many ways tragic that nobody's writing for it anymore because they've just kind of moved over to the guitar but uh well i hope you're going to write more for it i i'm trying to but it's one of these things where you have to work with performers because they read in tablature and so with tablature you have to be very cautious about how you're going to introduce sort of new techniques and stuff plus you have to find somebody who is willing to enter into more you know adventurous you know harmonic language <laughs> and and, and maybe that's not yeah it might be hard with ludus but why didn't you just use lutes that are around why did you have to commission them to be built for you what was special about them oh, i wanted to play them <laughs> 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 can you play the lute yeah no i i started guitar lessons when i was i want to say about eight or nine so yeah i mean i can get through a box suite on a lute yeah you know, right at the beginning, I mentioned uh, somewhat famous names, John Adams, Philip Glass, the conductor, Michael Tilson Thomas, who mm. are, shall we say, fairly major names. Did you work with them in a sense that you studied with them or had master classes or wrote for them? How did you meet people of that caliber? Yeah, well, Michael Tilson Thomas sat on the board of the conservatory, San Francisco Conservatory. So it was very easy to kind of get access to him. I think the majority of the, the instrumentalists that were at uh, – San Francisco Symphony were also faculty. So it almost felt like, you know, this kind of grandfather figure in the conservatory. It was, uh, yeah. Um, with regards to John Adams, he's also fellow alumni at that school. So he studied composition at the same school. So it was one of the very first kind of memories that I had from the conservatory was uh, John Adams critiquing my music you know, <laughs> really? as a freshman. Yeah. yeah. And Philip Glass, I mean, would you are you remotely interested in minimalism, or does it feature at all in your compositions? Well, I think minimalism probably does feature at some level. I don't think actively or consciously, but you know, I tend to think of music as almost like it's. I mean, even though I'm Jewish, it's like it's my religion, music, and so I tend to think of everything maybe like this quasi scriptural thing, where it's like you know there is a place for all types of music. I mean. With other fellow composers and stuff, when I'm listening to it, I think, especially, and maybe that comes from studying other people's scores, you start to realize how they put their own internal worlds together. So I'm always very excited to listen to a composer, whatever it is that they're doing, even if it's not within the trajectory of what I'm doing. In fact, it's sometimes, you know, 
better to be that way. Yeah, but um, but Jonathan, that means as as I said at the beginning of the program, Jonathan, um, you clearly are interested in all forms of music, whether it's Renaissance, Baroque, classical, Romantic, right through to to modern music. But what I was wondering was how do you decide when you are writing, like for educating Rita. What sort of style are you going to use? And I think, was that when you were saying it was a combination of the sort of academic and the lush English countryside? You realize that that is what you've got to do. And you can do that quite easily because of your vast knowledge of all these different genres. Do you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, I, I think it's also one of the difficulties in terms of pitching yourself to different collaborators is that they hear a particular project and think that that's kind of what you do. And so, I mean, it's even, you know, with the show trying to figure out what you're going to focus on. But um, yeah, I think in my collaborative process with people, it's just as much about trying to understand who they are and reflect that back through, like essentially using me as the writing machine. So if they were to write music, this is what it would sound like. And I, they're, they're pretty extensive interviews that I go through in terms of send me, you know, what it is that you're inspired by. Um, and it's never from the standpoint of just trying to replicate that by knocking around a few, you know, mel melodic choices and stuff and then handing it off. Um, but it, it, I do really try to get this, this synergy between like what it is that they are asking for with regards to their influences, and then also what it is that they're trying to achieve with ever, whatever medium that is. The piece we're going to listen to now, you've written here as a little guide for me uh, how different symmetries outside of major and minor might sound while not being atonal. And I've discovered that atonal is a term that's quite misunderstood because I have listeners and friends saying to me that music was very atonal, and it wasn't. It was discordant, possibly, but not atonal. Do you agree with that? Atonal music can very often be very, very easy to listen to. Yeah, I mean, I wrote a paper in which I said atonality was a myth because I think no, no matter what you do to try to avoid a sense of center, I mean, music is all about expectation and then whether or not you take the listener to the expectation or whether you divert it in some way. And that is true whether it's Bach, Brahms, or Schoenberg. Or Tristan and Isolde. Exactly, yeah. Which is a very um, good example of that. Exactly, yeah. And and the weird thing is, I think, historically, when we listen back, I mean, most listeners would listen to Tristan and Isolde and not figure out why it was so jarring at the time um, with everything else that has evolved since then. So, yeah, for me, I think with the symmetries that I was talking about is that it dawned on me at some point that the reason why we kind of move to or we we uh, prefer major and minor chords is because they have an almost perfect symmetry. If you take the octave and you divide it equally into thirds, it's four semitones and four semitones, right? But if it's four semitones and three, then it's very, very close. Mm. And I know this is very abstract, but if you think four semitones versus one is not, it's very skewed. And so if you're thinking in triangles, it's like these skewed triangles. But what I noticed that was you know, in Schoenberg's music, sometimes the, the very hard stuff to listen to was that there wasn't a harmonic consistency, meaning if you're going to introduce a different type of shape that's outside of major or minor, you have to be consistent in how you evolve that shape. And that alone, I think, allows people to hear kind of a, a trajectory of where the music is actually being led to. Okay, so let's sample okay. a bit of that with this particular track.
you are. Now, if you were listening carefully, you would have heard Jonathan introduce that uh, the symmetries outside of major and minor might sound while not being actually atonal. So thanks for that demonstration there. My guest, Jonathan Blair, on People of Note here on Fine Music Radio this week, talking about interesting aspects and angles to music. But now I see musicology. Uh, are you still you're doing a postgraduate in musicology, aren't you? That's correct. Is there a reason you've chosen musicology? I think I just need to constantly be talking about music as a composer <laughs> too. A, yeah. It's like he, you know, you can hand something to someone and there's like a kind of a passive experience about it. But if you don't explain kind of the way that music is working, I think, or let me say it this way: if the more you know about how music is working, the more you know you appreciate it. And I think one of the things that, and I mentioned this earlier before, is that between one composer and another. I mean, people often say that music is like a language that everybody speaks the same, but it's not actually true, I think. Uh, and, and I think that's what makes it so fascinating and interesting. Um, when you see how a composer is assembling a particular world or how an entire culture is assembling a particular world. So my interest in musicology is from that standpoint in, in terms of the actual speaking of it, because it's not the same thing as theory. And it's not, I, I mean, they focus on different types of interests. So yeah, musicology, I think, is a big part of what I am interested in. And also, we spoke earlier about Arabic music, yeah. um, but have you ever experimented with other forms of, can we say, exotic music, like Indian music or some of the, the local ethnic music here? Well, my dissertation is on the ethnic music here. So, um, and, and basically, like I was saying with Arabic music and that sliding scale, is that as you give more to one you lose more of the other, one style versus the other style. And so that's the, kind of at the heart of the dissertation is how do you make those styles both present? And I think, you know, composers have attacked or try to get there. And again, maybe going into the atonal thing, people like Hendrik Hofmeier or Stefan Grove, you know, when they have this music that is so perfectly balanced, there's that tendency to think, well, how is that representative of African indigenous music to begin with? There's another thing, again, being Jewish, you know, when you're in the shul service, they kind of cantalize the entire Torah. And there's these beautiful kind of little microtonal inflections that happen. And so if you take those and, and, and I think create kind of a basis of it to create a piece, um, it will give you a particular harmony that, you know, maybe won't immediately sound Jewish. But I'm just basically getting at the, the harp and violin piece is a Jewish piece. And this is the piece we're going to yeah. play out with, isn't it? Yeah. Extended techniques and virtuosic expectations you've written here. Yeah, so it's just, it's, you know, I think kind of, uh, I was already talking about this, but uh, when you're writing, you are constantly thinking about what's possible and what's not. So like in this piece, you'll hear the violin basically bowing one string, and then he has to kind of do a glissando through the other string. And, and it sounds almost like two or three instruments are playing together. I have things like the harp is using like nails to go up the string and create a particular sound. And I even have the, the violinist walks over at one point and bows the, str uh, the string of the harp. So in the Hebrew concept of Shekinah means like the presence of the divine. It's talking about both the the opposite, so it's the female aspect of God, basically, but that at the same time, it is all unified as one. And so that comes, I, I mean, that's the kind of conception of the piece as well, is that you have these two stringed instruments that are kind of very much different. You know, you pluck the harp, you bow the string, and then they start trying to find their identity with each other. 
And that's what we're going to play out with now. Okay. Jonathan, thank you for a very, very um, fascinating conversation. And don't forget the production of Educating Rita, for which Jonathan Blair has written the incidental music, is running at the Theatre on the Bay until the 15th of July. So as we listen to this piece for harp and violin by my guest, Jonathan Blair, thank you very much. Thank you for having me.
People of Note on Fine Music Radio was proudly brought to you by Peter Turin Productions. Thank you.